I want you to, for a moment, and if it helps, close your eyes, imagine with me. When I say the words, heaven on earth, what do you picture? What do you picture? Is there a place that you've been to maybe, that you've seen, that you've read about, and when you think of heaven on earth, that's where your mind immediately goes to? Well, I'm sure we could probably all get a picture of that, but I wonder if the opposite would be true. Like, is there anywhere that you know of that you would actually call hell on earth? What would you picture as, what would you say is hell on earth? Well, recently that title has gone to the city of Mariupol, which is in Ukraine. Uh, If you thought the four-month lockdown last year in Sydney was bad, Mariupol was blasted and besieged by the Russian army for four long months. And those who survived and escaped it Literally, the words they used was, it was hell on earth. Now, I want you to know that Mariupol used to look like this, a travel destination, an important industrial city for Ukraine. During the siege, it became like this. As missiles hit the city again and again and again, power and gas and water supplies were all cut. 400,000 residents, the ones who remained, cowered in freezing shelters, hugging for warmth, an estimated 10 to 20,000, they're still not sure because so many people haven't been accounted for, 10 to 20,000, they think, civilians, right? Civilians, not army, civilians perished. Bodies were littered in the streets, dumped in mass graves. The quotes uh, that I, I found, someone said this, everything was burning. There were corpses everywhere. And I was just walking through, picking up a cabbage here, a carrot there, knowing it meant that my family would live another day or two you become completely desensitized to the dead bodies around you. Stray dogs would come and pick out the remains of the dead bodies, and then people were so hungry, they would hunt down the stray dogs and eat them. People were so thirsty that the the residents had to drain water from their radiators just to get a drink, or they would collect and uh, melt snow. They would look in local parks for freshwater streams, but then these streams soon got contaminated by all the dead bodies, so they had to stop using water from there. Hell on earth. See, the next time um, we complain about our living conditions or public transport or food and petrol prices, maybe a little perspective might help. Now, I tell you all of that because Judges 9, which we're looking at today, is probably one of the places in the Bible where you could say is hell on earth. It is a picture of hell on earth. And I'm not using that term lightly, of course, because as we read on, and if you read it yourself, and as we look at it, you'll see there's so much death, there's so much chaos, and there's certainly a lot of fire happening. So it's not an exaggeration to say that Judges 9 is a picture of what happens when hell is on earth. It's a chapter that virtually has no good news. Okay, it's bleak, it's violent, it's horrible. It's a picture of when sin runs rampant and evil seems like there's no boundaries and no restraint. Now, if you've ever felt like our world is like that, then this is an important chapter. Because I want to say to you that Even in a chapter like this, God still has a plan and a purpose. But more importantly, God still has a word of grace. There's mercy in this. There's hope in this still. And if this week in particular, with all the tragedies that's happened in and around our Sweck family, you feel sometimes downcast and hopeless, or maybe you look at the world and and the assassination of the former Japanese prime minister and 
you just think the world is out of control. You know, journeying through this chapter is a way that you will see how God does bring hope, even in the darkest, hellish, most hellish places. So let's pray and let's get into it. Father, we pray because we know that um, this chapter has not come at an accidental time. We live in a world that is broken. We experience brokenness. And Lord, above all today, we really pray, Father, that your word might speak hope when, we see, when it seems like there is no hope. Help us to see what you have come to bring and that this is for everyone, anyone who's grieving, anyone who's hurting, that hope comes through knowing you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a couple of big points. Firstly, the story, then the significance. Um, it's a really long chapter, and if you were um, in our community groups this week, uh, hopefully you've had a chance to read the entire thing. So I'm just going to kind of plow through it really quickly. I'll focus on the characters. Um, and we need to start, of course, with Gideon, because that's where the problems began. Uh, if you were here last week, you would have heard Pastor Marshall talk about the rise and fall of Gideon, because Gideon sowed the seeds for his family's failures. I recap, um, at the end of his big illustrious career, he just brought victory to the people of God over Midian. They asked him to be king and he rightly said, no, I'm not going to be your king. But, you remember, he instead asked for them to give them all his gold, their gold, and he made it into this priestly garment, an ephod, sort of reminder of the golden calf. And it became like a golden calf, a source of idolatry for the people. Not a great move, Gideon. But then the other thing he did was he refused to be king, but he was pretty much in king. He was pretty much king in everything but name. Like we read there in chapter 8, verse 30, he has 70 sons. What kind of a person has 70 sons and multiple wives? A king, of course. A king. And more importantly, in verse 31, one of his wives, or actually not even a wife, a concubine again, who has concubines, kings. All right, she's from the city of Shechem. She bears a son called Abimelech. Abimelech's name, so he names his child. What does he name his son? Abimelech, which means my father, the king. What do you think is on Gideon's mind? Oh, no, 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 don't make me king. I'm going to name my son, my father, the king. All right. Gideon was trying to be king in everything but name. Now, that failure would not only lead Israel astray, Okay, uh, we see at the end of chapter 8, they go back to worshipping the very Baals that Gideon destroyed. His name, Jerubal, basically means a destroyer of Baal, all right? But it also sowed the seeds to all the chaos that would follow through this son. So we go to Abimelech, chapter 9. Abimelech really is like father, like son. He is living out all of the hidden desires of his father, but pff, now they're all obvious, so he's the son of a concubine, okay, not even an official wife. He probably felt left out all of his life, yeah? And so really, probably what was motivating him was this, not just, you know, he wants to be king, but he wants to get even. So what does he do? He goes to Shechem, the city of his mother's family are from Shechem. He wins them over so that they might make him king. But in order to get there, look what he does. Right? Verse 4, firstly, Shechem agrees to his plot. They give him 70 pieces of silver from the temple of Baal. Right? We'll see the temple of Baal come back later on. And Abimelech uses that money to form basically a gang, a terrorist group, if you like. And with this group, he manages to slaughter 69 of his 70 brothers. 
the sons of Gideon, all on one stone, okay? It's almost like a human sacrifice altar, one after the other. You can imagine just killing them one after the other, all 69, probably actually 68 because he's, anyway, 68 of them, one after the other on the stone. See, how cheap were their lives? Shechem gave him how many pieces of silver? 70 pieces of silver to form his murder brigade. The life of each of his brothers was only worth one piece of silver. And then in verse 6, they gather to make him king. All right, that's Abimelech. Now at this point, the son who escapes, well, he makes an appearance. And he goes on top of a famous mountain, the mountain called Gerizim, which is actually a mountain of blessing. But ironically, on the mountain of blessing, he pronounces a curse. Now we're going to read these verses because we didn't read them before, but have a look with me. It's on the overhead. Uh, When Jotham, this son who escaped, was told about this, he climbed on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. And he tells them a fable or a parable. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil by which both gods and humans are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next, the tree said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Uh, Yep, next slide. Then the tree said to the vine, come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, Come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. All right. I hope you get the the point of the fable. Um, All the good trees, right? The good trees that you would actually want. Olive tree, fig tree. They say no to being made king. But it's the thorn bush that agrees. Now, what kind of a thorn bush? Scholars think it's a buckthorn. Um, I don't know anything about gardening, but buckthorn, you just have to Google buckthorn and you will know, as I found out, that it is a terrible weed. It's one of those ones that grow uncontrollably. It takes over the vegetation. It's hard to remove. And Jotham's point is Abimelech is the buckthorn. He's not the noble olive tree or fig tree, not the fruitful. No, he's like a buckthorn. You choose him, you're choosing your own doom. And the fable then becomes a curse. And this curse, and the reason why we read it is because it'll come true for the rest of the chapter. So have a look at verse 16. Let's read on. Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jerubal, that's Gideon, and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you've revolted against my father's family. You've murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and made him Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem, because he's related to you. So have you acted honorably and in good faith towards Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not... Let fire come from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. All right, take note of some of that at the end because we'll see it come true. But let's keep going. Next character, well, really, is a city. 
Shechem. The rest of the chapter sees this curse come true to a T. So verse 22, uh, three years pass with Abimelech as king. But then in the course of these three years, the citizens of Shechem begin to turn against the man that they made king. Now, a few events are involved, and I'm just going to run through them. We have time to read all the verses. Uh, but if you get a chance, please go and read it some other time. Um, anyway, let me go through six things that happen. Firstly, uh, verse 25, the citizens of Shechem, well, ironically, they form their own gangs. Remember, Abimelech had his gang. Well, now they form their own gangs. And they're ambushing travelers. But in doing so, they make Abimelech's rule look pretty weak. I mean, what kind of a king can't keep his own people safe? So that's what they do, citizens of Shechem. And then secondly, a man called Gaal, who is a native, a true native of Shechem. Remember, Abimelech wasn't a native of Shechem, right? It's his mum's family. Well, he's a true native of Shechem. He wins over the city's confidence and turns them against Abimelech. The third thing that happens, another man who's actually the governor of Shechem, a guy called Zebul, he's actually Abimelech's lackey. And so he snitches on Gaal and the citizens of Shechem. And so with Abimelech, they create an ambush on Gaal and the citizens of Shechem. And a battle is fought. That's the fourth thing that happens. And when Abimelech fights against Shechem, Abimelech wins. Then the next thing that happens, the fifth thing, well, that's not enough for Abimelech. He wins the battle because the day after the battle, he goes and ambushes the survivors in the field. So they're probably civilians, you know, trying to look for lost loved ones who died in battle. Well, he finds them, he kills them all, okay, slaughters them all, just like he did his brothers. And then he goes into the city and he slaughters them all as well. It says that he raises the city completely, completely to the ground. All right, scorched earth policy. And then the last thing that happens, number six, the remaining citizens of Shechem, they run away, but they hide in the tower. Where do they hide? In the temple of Baal, the same temple they got the silver from. There's a bit of irony there. And then like Jotham says, fire comes out to devour them. So let's read the um, verses right at the end of the chapter for 49. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold, the tower set it on fire with the people still inside. So all the people in the Tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Wow, huh? Chaos, violence, fire, death. Shechem is destroyed. Is Abimelech happy? No, he's not happy. He's still not enough. We read in verse 50. He then goes rampaging onto a neighboring city, the city of Thebes, and lays siege on it. Now, we don't know anything about this city. Is it because they were allied with Shechem? Or was it just a random city? He just decided he would conquer that as well. We don't know. But whatever the case, a bit of deja vu happens with Thebes. See, the people of that city, they also run away and hide in a tower. And Abimelech will try to use the same tactic, set it on fire. Only this time, and this is how the chapter ends, 52, Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance of the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head, and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say a woman killed him. So a servant ran him through, and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. And of course, the last character that's mentioned in the chapter is God. A summary of the events, and you'll see that God is the name, main character, even through all the chaos. Verse 56 
Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubal, came on them. All right. I told you it was chaos. I told you it was horrible. It really is like hell on earth. So let's wind back and have a think about the significance. Firstly, sin. Uh, see, what, what, what is the definition of sin? I think this chapter gives us a really good one. It's not just doing bad things, is it? Sin is really people trying to be king instead of God, trying to be God instead of God. Now, you need to know that Judges has this um, theme that runs through the, the whole book of why things were so chaotic through this time of the Judges. And it, and it, it goes like this. You see it on, on the slide. In those days, Israel had no king. You see, Abimelech was trying to fill that void by taking matters into his own hands, making himself king. But it's not just Abimelech, right? We saw the problem started with Gideon. Gideon sowed the seeds. He behaved like a king in everything but name. Which reminds us that little sins have big consequences. And we need to know that because here's the thing. Our danger, probably, if you're sitting here watching at home, isn't going to be spectacular claims of kingship like Abimelech. That's probably not you. That's probably not the people around you today. Our problem is probably more going to be like Gideon's. That is, oh yeah, God is king. I'll have God on his big throne, but I will sit on my little throne. Isn't that likely to be your problem and mine? It's not that you refuse to have God as king. It's not that you will openly usurp his kingship, his rule. You will just want to have him as king. But really, honestly, in your heart of hearts, you know you're trying to run your own life pretty much. And the evidence of this is, of course, if you are a follower of Jesus or you claim to be, then your Christianity is going to be pretty comfortable. You're right? Is your Christianity pretty comfortable? That, uh, in, in other words, God never says anything to you to challenge or upend your plans for your life. He only somehow ever only affirms everything that you want to do. Your Christianity is comfortable. God never says anything to rebuke you, or if he does, you make sure that that's not a loud voice and you ignore it. Is that your version of Christianity? Because if it is, then I submit to you that you are like Gideon. You haven't openly said, God, you are not king, but you're trying to be king instead of God. And that is the essence of sin, is it not? Secondly, judgment. There seems to be no justice in this chapter or judgment. But actually, you'll see that judgment in this chapter and actually throughout the Bible is God allowing people to do their worst. God giving people over to their sin. Um, the full sentence that I quoted before from Judges, in those days Israel had no king, the second part goes like this, everyone did as they saw fit. When God lets everyone do as they see fit, that actually is a form of judgment. It's horrible, but it's true. You actually see that in, in, in the book of Romans. Have a look at these verses. The wrath, the anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Skip down a few verses. Therefore, you see this, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to the sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. He let them do what they wanted to. Keep going, verse 28. God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. You want a picture of hell on earth? There it is. And in fact... That's probably a picture of what eternal hell is going to be like. The Bible uses images. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else of fire and gnashing of teeth. And, and they're only picture images, but probably the, the best stuff that I've read about hell is likely God for eternity withdrawing all of his goodness, all of his grace, all evidence of us being in the image of God and allowing people for all eternity to be everything that they want to be without a restraint. Can you imagine an eternity like that? That is probably the picture of eternal hell. When God gives people exactly what they ask for. And what we ask for is exactly the hell we deserve. There is obviously now, as you know, a culture that wants us all to be our authentic selves, expressing your authenticity. Don't let anyone stop you from being and expressing the authentic you. Do you know what the Bible says about that? The Bible says that is a picture of hell. Everyone doing just that is actually a picture of hell. Because what if God let us all be our authentic selves and we realize that our authentic selves are selfish and narcissistic and toxic, which they are. Don't buy the lie, friends. This idea that we all need to be our authentic selves, looking within, expressing all of our desires, that is nothing short of hell on earth. And we see glimpses of that already. Judges 9, this is where hell on earth comes from. This cycle of vengeance, you see it, right? It's just revenge. After revenge, Abimelech wants to take vengeance on his brothers, maybe because he felt left out all of his lives, maybe because he was the insignificant son of a concubine. Then Shechem takes vengeance on Abimelech, and then Abimelech takes vengeance on Shechem. He's just like his dad, Gideon, that we saw last week in chapter 8. Those who are bullied often become bigger bullies. Now, we see that happening in the world, don't we, you know? You know, the culture wars between the left and the right, the progressives and the conservatives, the formerly bullied minorities, the progressives, the left, rising up. And what have they become? They've become just as or even more vicious than their former bullies. And then cancel culture, and it comes back and forth and back and forth. Friends, that's not justice, is it? That's just what we see in Judges 9. That is a picture of hell. That's just vengeance. Because judgment only belongs in the hands of God. So the New Testament keeps telling us, don't take revenge, leave it to God. Leave it to God. Only He brings justice. You see, where was God in Judges chapter 9? Well, we saw it right at the end, but you actually also see it in the middle. I missed those verses before. It's good, 
chance to read them now. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God stirred up, you see? God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam, 70 sons, the shedding of their blood might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. Even as God gives people over to their sins, there is justice. God brought about the words of Jotham, who appears and then disappears. We don't hear about Jotham for the rest of the Bible. But Jotham's name, remember names are important. Abimelech's name, my father is king. What does Jotham's name mean? The Lord is perfect. The Lord is perfect because God's judgment is the only perfect judgment. Unlike human revenge, God's judgment is fair. See, human revenge is so disproportionate, right? Just see Abimelech and Shechem. He strikes back but destroys the whole city. And then he goes to the next city, he tries to destroy that. That's not proportional. God's judgment is fair. And so I want to point out some irony. With Abimelech's death, you know how he dies, right? A stone dropped on his head by a woman. There's irony there because it's a stone. Remember, Abimelech slaughtered 70 sons of Gideon, what? On a stone. Happened to be a woman, an unnamed woman. Well, Abimelech, what did he do right at the beginning? He appealed to a woman, his mom, used her to exact his plot. Another unnamed woman would be his undoing. And the stone crushes his head, this head that wanted to stick out above his 70 brothers. Well, the stone made a nice crown, didn't it? Irony. It took three years, by the way, didn't it? Three years, three long years, but it happened. God plays the long game. Justice might take a while, but God will get there. You see, every sin gets accounted for in God's book. This will be the case for all the injustices in the world. That's why Christians are people who can live patiently with hope. No matter what injustices or corruption happen in this world, God will square every account. What happened in Mariupol, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and every injustice done by Russia or the West, God will square every account, you see, because the Lord is perfect. Let me remind you at this time that this goes down to the personal level. God is just. God is patient. But can I beg you not to test the patience of God? Don't play around with sin. Friends, if you're here and you know, and it may be a secret to everyone else, but you know that there's undealt with sin in your life, in your relationships, hidden, habitual, unconfessed, sin, whatever it is. It could be cheating, greed, Bitterness, hatred, sexual sin, whatever it is, don't test the patience of God, will you? And today is the day to do business with God, to confess, to repent, to get help, to talk to someone about it, someone you trust. Talk to me, one of the pastors. Don't test the patience of God. 
Three long years it took in Judges 9, and sometimes God takes more than three years, but it does come around. It will eventually. God will settle every account. And finally, grace, question mark. (laughs) Um, We've seen through the book of Judges that there is that cycle, sin, judgment, grace. But where's the grace in Judges chapter 9? Well, it's only hidden because in God's sovereignty over evil, even the evil of Judges 9 doesn't have the last word. It took three years, but God eventually settled things. Judgment is not opposite to grace. Judgment, God doing just things, is actually grace because you think about the rest of the people of Israel. Imagine if Abimelech had his way for the next 30 years. The fact that God reduced it to three, that is sort of grace, right? But you actually have to look beyond Judges. Um, remember I said that there's, Judges keep saying, in those days Israel had no king? Well, the problem isn't that they had no king, The problem is, of course, that Israel had the wrong king. They had self-appointed kings, guys like Abimelech and his dad, Gideon. And so when we look beyond the pages of Judges, we would see that the only solution is not that people would still have no king, but that the right king would come along. Isn't that the solution? The solution is that someone would come and be the king that God appoints. See, what if we did have such a king? Uh, Someone who never takes kingship by personal ambition and certainly not by violence. Someone who even had kingship offered to him on a platter by the prince of this world, Satan. And he turns it down at his temptation. A king who would submit himself obediently to God the Father and ever only do what his father willed. The true Abimelech. The one who could really say, my father, the king. Well, that one also said the night before he died, not my will, but yours be done, heavenly father. Well, we do have such a king, don't we, friends? And that's the good news. That king is Jesus. And that's why what you do with King Jesus matters so much. He came to bear your sin. He came to change your life. He came to rule it in a way that doesn't oppress you, but free you and give you real purpose and hope for all eternity. He's the kind of king worth having, is he not? There's the grace that Judges points us towards. And one day, three years, three days or 300 years, we don't know, but the king will return and he will deliver his perfect justice. On that day, every sin will be accounted for. But here's the good news, because you have a choice today. And while you are alive, you can let your king bear your sin or wait till the day where you have to bear it yourself. You've got a choice. And I think it's a pretty obvious one, the one that you want to make, right? Let your king who willingly gave his life for your sin bear it in your place. Every sin will be accounted for. Every justice perfectly will be delivered. But if you belong to Jesus, as we sang before the throne of God above, then all your sins accounted for, He takes in your place. And you will not have to bear it or face it when He returns. That is a king worth following. That is a king worth trusting in. 
that is a king worth having even when the world and our lives seem like it's falling apart, yeah? Let's get ready to sing. Get the band up, I'll pray. Beautiful King Jesus, we thank you that you are a king like no other, that you are the true and the good Abimelech. You are the one who said, my father's will be done, because my father, your father, our father, you held as your king. And that makes you worthy of being the king of all. I pray today that those here dealing and wrestling with hidden, unconfessed, Sin that needs to be dealt with today would be a day where there's real repentance, a day where they say, I need to stop playing with God. I need to stop testing the patience of God and I will let Jesus bear my sin. I pray that today will be a day of confession and prayer and repentance. And I pray that those today who find it hard to hang on, to keep trusting in Jesus as King because life is difficult, because doubts arise, because our culture is trying to suck us away and tempt us. Father, I pray that today they will rejoice and see the great King Jesus and that He is worth sticking with, that He is worth following. Jesus, reveal Yourself to every person here. And I pray that people who have not yet put their trust in Jesus as King, I just want to pray right now, maybe you want to pray this in your heart right now. You're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you know today that 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 you want to be a follower of Jesus, that Jesus is your King, that you want Him to be, I pray now, Lord, that in their hearts they would say, yes, I'm willing. Be my King, Jesus. Forgive my sins. Help me to live for you. And right now, I pray that people would come and become Christians, followers of the King. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.